0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Marjorie Feld, who teaches at Babson College, here to talk about her new book, Nations Divided American Jews and the Struggle Over Apartheid, published in 2014 by Palgrave Macmillan. Marjorie, welcome to New Books in Jewish
1: Studies. Thanks so much for having me, Jason.
0: Well, it's great to have you. So, Marjorie, could you start briefly by telling us what apartheid was and is? You know, after I finished the book, I glanced at the cover and realized that the words South Africa are not in the title. And I think that's on purpose, right? So tell us briefly how the book is framed as a struggle over apartheid.
1: Well, that's very attentive to you. The um, title was the source of some struggle for me and the editors as well. So I'm glad you paid attention to that. I would say that we deliberately kept the words South Africa out of the title because, as most of the listeners know, I'm sure apartheid is the legal separation of the races And most often when people talk about apartheid, they're referring to uh, the historical um, forces and uh, laws that were in place that emerged in South Africa, formally anyway, in the 1950s and ended when uh, Mandela was freed and South Africa transitioned to democracy in 1990. But as I was writing the book, originally I had intended to focus explicitly and only on American Jews in the anti-apartheid movement with regard to South Africa. But because I was writing this, you know, in the early O's, and the word apartheid became increasingly used to refer to the Israel-Palestine and debates over Israel and Palestine, really to refer to the way Israel treats Palestinians in the territories, and some would even argue within Israel proper, um, I decided to trace it not only backwards, from the time that um, South Africa was building apartheid in the 1950s, but also to trace it forward to talk about how American Jews responded to the and still respond to the use of the word apartheid in Israel-Palestine. And what I eventually decided and came up with and discovered and hopefully demonstrate is that the debates are very similar. The debates stretching back to the 1950s, whether Jews should take a stand, have an obligation to take a stand against South African apartheid, those debates sort of echo in the debates over whether or not American Jews can criticize Israel and talk about Israel and Palestine and use the word apartheid today. So that's why the word doesn't appear in the in the title. And that's why the stretch of the book goes from the 1950s up until really almost moments before publication in 2014.
0: Mm-hmm. So much of the, especially the early part of the book, does deal with South African apartheid um, You know, there's a common perception that Jews were at the forefront of the American Civil Rights Movement, and so readers might be surprised to learn that Jews were not unanimous against apartheid. How do you explain the intracommunal dispute against apartheid?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think if I had to pinpoint one thing that, um, I don't know, readers of a certain age, I would say maybe my parents' age, maybe uh, people who grew up in in the... 60s and 70s, if I had to pinpoint one thing that was an intense surprise to them, it was that very fact, that American Jews were not at the forefront of the anti-apartheid struggle, at least not within American Jewish organizations. And that's an important qualification historically, and I think it helps answer the question that you're posing. American Jewish organizations in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when the early 80s, when the anti-apartheid movement led led by blacks in South Africa and certainly by um, African Americans in the U.S., when this movement was really gaining momentum, a lot of American Jews felt forced to choose between radicalism, and I want to say Jewish identity. There is a chapter in the book titled Jews are Radicals. I think that the way American Jewish organizations sort of locked into a notion that it was either Jewish unity um, around the issue of a certain kind of Zionism or nothing, I think the way they locked into that uh what I call a false consensus around Israel and Zionism prevented American Jews from working against apartheid in America, with, from within American Jewish organization, organizational life. And that is to say, these organizations kind of fell in behind a notion that we had to stand with South African Jews and there's plenty of scholarship demonstrating that South African Jews were silent on apartheid until the mid-'80s. If we criticized apartheid as American Jews, we would be threatening uh, the safety of South African Jews. And so to criticize apartheid was to um, diminish Jewish loyalty, was to diminish Jewish unity, and therefore was you know, inherently against the better interest of Jews across the world. So that force holds sway really in the 60s and 70s. And then increasingly, as Israel and South Africa become allies, first sort of covertly, and then, you know, becomes widely known that Israel is allying with South Africa in a sort of Cold War alliance, I think, you know, saying anything against apartheid, who is funding Israel in its moment of great crisis when it's on a, an, a, sort of a path towards isolation on the world stage, saying anything against South African apartheid in that real politic, right, in that um, scenario also presents a certain set of, um, it also creates damage to American Jewish unity and also threatens Jews, in this case in Israel. So there was a way in which American Jewish organizations sort of stole the narrative and presented uh, American Jews with a choice. You can either um, stand out against apartheid and join anti colonialist struggles and stay within the civil rights movement, or you can be Jewish and you can stand with Israel not criticize South African apartheid, not join, uh, join the growing third world criticisms of um, Israel's occupation and you know, other positions that Israel takes around the world. So it's an either-or choice that I think many American Jews felt they had to make in the 60s and 70s and early 80s that to stay with the anti-apartheid movement, to stay with the civil rights movement, was to abandon their Jewish identity, And certainly the narrative of a mainstream American Jewish organization contributes to that sense
0: on their part. You say that uh, Jews had to sort of balance their particularist and universalist commitments. So, um, you know, after the Holocaust, some Jews seemed to say, let's do whatever we need to do to make sure nobody ever has to experience something like this again. And some people said, let's do whatever we need to do to make sure we never experience anything like this again. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, that was. There's a paragraph in there about the use of the term "never again," and it was one of the hardest paragraphs I had to write. I would say one of the reasons that I chose this topic was to be able to uh, interview people who actually lived through these moments. My first book was focused on the Progressive Era, and I never really. It was focused on a, a reformer named Lillian Wald who died in 1940. So it was very difficult for me to capture her voice even in my mind, to think about her moving through space and time. And certainly I was immersed in her words, but I really regretted that I never had met her or really only met a couple people who had known her. When I got to this research project, I was really happy to be able to talk to people who had lived and breathed these movements. And one of the benefits of that was talking to them about this notion of never again. I mean, it sounds almost trite, but coming to understand the ways in which the Holocaust, which many of them had seen as children or even, you know, very young adults, shaped their understanding of the potential of Israel to provide a haven not just for Jews, but to be a sort of universalist state that was Jewish in, you know, in every aspect, but universalist in its acceptance and presenting a democracy to that part of the world. So these Jews felt that never again meant these progressive Jews whom I interviewed for the book felt that never again really meant Jews had an obligation, indeed a moral imperative to join movements for justice all around the world. And they saw Zionism as contributing to those movements for justice because it was a just end um, for Jewish freedom and liberation after the Holocaust. There were others, as you say, who appear in the book who for whom never again has a very different message. And it is one where, never again means that we can't diminish Jewish loyalties. We can't stand in the way of um, Jewish unity, and that has to be paramount in our priorities no matter what, even if it means not taking stands against um, oppression such as apartheid.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, a few of the chapters do contain these sort of short biographical sketches. Uh, How did you select them, and uh, what sources, it sounds like you did interviews, what sources did you use um, to, to identify these figures?
1: Yeah, that was the best part of the book. These interviews, um, the best part of the research for the book. Um, I mean, I really just hunted around. I had intended to do this topic. Again, I began thinking it was going to be a book about the 1980s. And I looked at the Schlesinger Library. I'm a gender historian, and that has a great warehouse of sources on women in U.S. history and global history. And I found a couple of women there who were in the anti-apartheid movement. And I started finding organizations, Jewish and not, um that had taken Stand Against Apartheid and just, you know, sort of following leads. It's difficult for me even to reconstruct, except for Peter Weiss, who occupies a prominent space in the book and with whom I'm still pretty close. He was one of the founders of the American Committee on Africa in the 1950s. I went looking for Jews (laughs) in these organizations and um, people led me to him and he was someone whom I could easily see integrating into the book because he was someone who felt that his Jewishness was very much bound up in his anti-colonialist activism. So finding Jews involved in the anti-apartheid movement was not difficult. In the archives, there are plenty of lists of people, you know, this is the 80s, right, there are faxes and things like that, there's paper. Um, But at the same time, finding individuals who felt that their Jewishness was bound up in their activism was another kind of a search, and it really, you know, made the uh, interviews necessary. So um, Sharon Kleinbaum, I found, I believe, looking at uh, pro- student protests at Columbia and Barnard. She was in charge of some of those. And when I went and interviewed her, it was very clear to me that she saw those protests not only as grounded in her Jewish identity and her parents sort of left Jewish activism, but also that she saw it as hap- she, she joined a uh, college and led college protests, not Jewish protests against apartheid. And she really did that very consciously because she felt that um, American Jews on her campus in the late 70s and early 80s were sort of embodying a kind of conservatism that made her incredibly uncomfortable. So these are most of the Jews that I found talked about their, the Jewishness along with their activism, but also felt very alienated from the conservative bent of American Jewish organizations in the 70s and 80s. So it was a very particular group of people I was looking for that I ended up being very fortunate in finding.
0: Do you see more scholarship on American Jews becoming transnational, meaning uh, putting it in a global framework?
1: I think that's definitely true. I think it's refreshing, necessary, um, and kind of inspiring. I think that American Jewish history for quite a long time has been very focused, and I'll even say narrowly focused, on um, areas of Jewish concern, that is Russian Jewry and refuseniks and certainly Zionism in Israel, Jewish contributions to the civil rights movement. So I guess to say within the U.S. borders, we're focused on a certain narrative of American Jews and liberalism. And outside, when we when American Jewish historians do stray outside the borders of the United States, it's really on issues of um, Jewish interest or mainstream Jewish interest. But I think that is gradually changing. I think it's a really refreshing change. And I think it will add complicated, new, interesting, compelling layers to the history of Jews within the United States.
0: And the the traditional story says that 1967 was sort of a turning point for Jews uh, and how they thought about human rights as Jews. But you say no, actually there was a debate earlier. So tell us just briefly, what is the traditional story and how do you challenge it?
1: So the traditional story is 1967, you know, Israel's victorious in that war. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety on the part of American Jews over whether or not Israel um, can defeat the forces that are aligned against it in 1967 in the Six Day War. The victory of Israel and its subsequent occupation over the West Bank and Gaza lead to a sort of, what some historians call a sort of muscular Zionism in the United States. So there is this building up of this sense of um, Jewish accomplishment and Jewish victory and tremendous relief as well and at the same time, so this is this is building this sense of Jewish identity. It's, it's in the cauldron of the identity politics of the 1960s, the Black Power Movement, and the rise of some anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in the Black um, nationalist movements that then come to dominate the civil rights agenda in the late 60s. So American Jews who are feeling this new muscular Zionism are also feeling increasingly alienated from the progressive civil rights um, alliances that they had built, in the 50s and 60s. And so there comes this moment, as I said before, something like the, the choice between are you a Jew or are you a radical? And I think that American Jewish historians have narrated it with regard to the rise of black nationalism, with regard to the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in these progressive left circles, in the new left generally. But they haven't paid a lot of attention to the clues that were building long before that, even a decade before that, when Israel allies with France in the um, Algerian independence war when um, other things happen within U.S. borders that indicate to some progressive American Jews that Israel is on this path uh, toward abandoning its sort of what are heralded as uh, progressive commitments in black Africa. For many, for at least a decade, Golda Meir led black African nations uh, to ally with Israel and really form a tight bond where Israel could count on those credentials, right? Israel could be seen in the way that I think progressive Zionists wanted it to be seen. It could rest on its laurels of um, forming alliances with these emerging black independent nations and present itself to the world as a haven for Jews post-Holocaust. But after 1967, when Israel, um, you know, committed itself to this occupation of Palestinian land Israel increasingly is on this path toward isolation, the world and the third world movement and black nationalist movements start seeing Israel as an imperialist power. And again, I think that those clues had been evident to some before 1967. I think that, um, not taking a stand against apartheid, for instance, um, when us Jews and world Jewish leaders tell, uh, progressive American Jews in the 1950s and sixties, no, you can't take a stand on, um, South African apartheid, because that's going to diminish your Jewish loyalty. And as Israel builds an alliance with South Africa, um, and progressive American Jews want to speak out on that, and American Jewish organizations say, no, you can't take a stand on that, because you know Israel is increasingly alone on the world stage, and South Africa is its only ally. I think all of those, even before 1967, are starting to diminish um, the credentials of Israel in terms of its progressive credentials, I mean. And I think If we look hard and fast at the evidence prior to 1967, we can see that third world activists were already beginning to criticize Israel as an imperialist power. And so American Jews, not just post-1967, but prior to 1967, progressive U.S. Jews already are issuing some criticisms, already are feeling some tensions, and already are feeling um, this sense that they may be forced to choose that then ends up actually happening post-1967 as American Jews are sort of, um, as left American Jews feel almost, I would say, purged from some mainstream Jewish organizations for their criticism of Israel's occupation.
0: And and this only builds uh, as we move into Chapter 6, which is called New Agendas. Uh, tell us what's going on there and... and uh, there, there are a few acronyms, so um, maybe give us a little preview. What is the NJA? <laughs> the
1: NJA is the New Jewish Agenda, which is an organization that existed not for a very long time, for um, a heady time in American Jewish history. The New Jewish Agenda was an LGBTQ uh, feminist, LGBTQ-friendly, feminist-friendly, progressive left Jewish organization where the chapters around the United States um really decided for themselves, was grassroots in this way, what they wanted to ally with in terms of um, progressive causes. So you have a lot of feminist work, a lot of work toward gay rights, and the NJA becomes one of the few, I wouldn't call it a mainstream Jewish organization, but it becomes one of the few um, visible and vocal Jewish organizations that continues to take a stand against apartheid into the, 19, in the, or into the 1980s, when most mainstream Jewish organizations are silent because of Israel's alliance with South Africa, because of this sort of muscular Zionism and Zionist consensus that they've embraced. NJA, there are chapters that devote themselves to anti-apartheid activism. They are the ones on the ground at some of these um, the UN conferences on women that I talk about, trying to build bridges between Palestinian and Arab women and Jewish women, this is a really great organization of people who are blasted by mainstream American Jewish leaders for their betrayal. They're called communists. They're called self-hating. Um, but they become really important to my story because they're sort of this island of activism in this sea of uh, I mean, they're, they're clearly counting their activism as emerging out of their Jewishness. And they remain with this um, liberation movement against apartheid, you know, following the lead of black activists in the United States even when the narrative has been captured by mainstream Jewish organizations um, as, you know, demeaning and diminishing the importance of that work.
0: And sort of, you know, this has been swirling in the background, but we haven't talked about it explicitly. What what is the the role of the Cold War in all this, Uh, the Israel-South Africa friendship? um, How does that play a role?
1: Well, I don't think it could play more of a role. I really see the Cold War as so intricately connected to, um, you know, obviously to the rise of Israel, when the Soviets begin backing Arab nationalism starting in 1954, then Israel is starting to cultivate new allies, right? So Israel really sees itself and the U.S. sees Israel as a bastion of um, democracy. Um, it becomes a flashpoint in the war against communism. There's no question. And I would actually say that people would still contend that that's true, that this sort of post-Cold War um whatever we're calling it now, is still contributing to our desire, that is the United States military's desire, leadership desire, to contribute to Israel's security, quote-unquote. Anyway, but I do think it's really important that, that Israel becomes a Cold War ally of the United States, gets millions of dollars, from billions of dollars every year from the United States, that American Jews are fed this sort of Cold War narrative, that that's um, integral to um, Jewish identity, those, that narrative coming at the same time as the American military is backing Israel as a Cold War ally. So as Israel stands on the world stage increasingly alone, except for American support, Israel turns to South Africa. And really, I think uh, that Sasha Polakow saransky who wrote this incredible book about the Israel-South Africa alliance, he calls that uh, the alliance of black African nations with Israel, which as I talked about, Golda Meir had cultivated in the 1950s and 60s. He calls it totally ripped to shreds by the time the Yom Kippur War comes along in 1973 because Israel's occupation has made it the subject of so many criticisms from third world countries from a growing force um, in the anti-apartheid movement that that cold war alliance between South Africa and Israel um, really ends up being pivotal to the way the United States sees Israel. And for American Jews, becomes this sticking point that they just can't can't recover from. I mean, you progressive American Jews don't know how to talk about the alliance between South Africa and Israel. There's this, you know, Cold War machinations going on at the global level, but at the local level, I think what I read and what I've talked to American Jews who were in the anti-apartheid movement, what I found is that they were really at a loss as to how to explain it. And the ways that they talk about it in their letters and in their speeches is just this notion that without South Africa, Israel would be alone and without American support, Israel would be alone. And how can this very important beacon of post-Holocaust Jewish hope and life be alone? Um, and so that it, it feels like the stakes are that high because of what's going on in these sort of Cold War struggles far above um, the lives of you know, most of us and far above even what we think about in our daily lives.
0: Chapter 7 uh, moves us into the Mandela era of South Africa. Um, and this is going back to our, the very beginning of our, conver- of our conversation. This is when the word apartheid um, expands, becomes even more contested. Uh, tell us what's going on in that chapter um, about how you, you say the same, the same debates, the same struggles about how to deal with the idea of apartheid um, causes tensions within the Jewish community.
1: Right. So I begin and end the book with a 1990 visit of Nelson Mandela to the United States. Um, specifically, with, he traveled around the U.S., but I talk about his visit to New York. And what's kind of shocking to think about, at least from a you know the perspective of somebody who was raised to think that Mandela was a hero, a national hero with no qualifications, um, is that in 1990, when it came to New York mainstream American Jewish leaders were really incredibly anxious and nervous because he was already taking stands um, allying with Gaddafi and talking about the ways in which Palestinians were facing an apartheid situation in Israel and Palestine. So I think this is a really pivotal moment that kind of you know, um, sheds light on the situation, the tensions within the American Jewish community between American Jewish leaders who really uh, wanted to make sure that Mandela was on the side of Israel and was thus saw that as equal to being on the side of American Jews, and those in the United States who were willing to um, concede that Palestinians, the PLO, Nelson Mandela in his visible alliance with Gaddafi, that there were merit in those causes, that there were parallels to be made. So you have this moment where... Um, what happens in this chapter when Mandela comes to New York and American Jewish leaders essentially ask him, invite him to a meeting before he gets to New York. These leaders are convinced he says the right things, but there are uh, sort of grassroots Jews, especially in New York City who feel that testing Mandela on Israel, that's at least the name of uh, an article that Elisa Solomon writes in the New York Times, don't test Mandela on Israel, who feel that's entirely wrong-headed that to not ask the sort of nuanced questions about Israel, to say that only standing in lockstep with this sort of conservative Zionism, that that's the only way to commit yourself to Jewish identity and um, the Jewish future. These grassroots sort of progressive Jews reject that idea. And in the moment that Mandela comes to New York, as I write about in this chapter, they form um, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York, what's called JFREJ. And it's not an organization that focuses on issues outside of New York City, outside of the United States. But it is a progressive Jewish organization committed to racial equality and economic equality. And I think that it's not an accident that it's forming just at this moment when sort of apartheid in Israel, uh, that is, American Jewish organizations are testing Mandela on Israel, is coming face-to-face with what was apartheid in South Africa, right, embodied by Mandela. And so in this chapter, I write about that moment in 1990 when these progressive Jews say no to mainstream Jewish organizational leaders and commit themselves to a progressive agenda in a new organization. I also talk in this chapter about the two Durban conferences, which were conferences designed to focus on imperialism and racism. One was in 2001, it was actually days before 9-11, and one was in 2009. And both times, American Jewish leaders looked out over the landscape of who was to speak at these conferences um, and what their agendas were and in some cases justifiably so they were very nervous about how Israel would play at these conferences but instead of issuing statements and telling um, world leaders to be cautious you know Iran's leader Ahmadinejad speaks at one of the conferences instead of sort of negating what he said and trying to posit counterpoints to those anti-Semitic Holocaust deniers, world Jewish organizational leaders and American Jewish organizational leaders tell the United States to boycott these two conferences. And so I see that as really, really important because these are conferences at which, for one thing, African Americans went to talk about reparations for slavery. And American Jewish organizations are the ones with the loudest protests. And so American Jewish organizations end up looking as though they are to blame for the fact that American, Amer- the United States doesn't take part in conversations at either of these Durban conferences. And I think that's really important. I think it diminishes further American Jewish credentials and progressive circles. It certainly did a lot more harm to the Black Jewish Alliance in the United States, which, again, is sort of a, a conversation that runs throughout these pages explicitly and implicitly. So this chapter talks about the ways in which um, American Jewish struggles with apartheid in South Africa, had then colored and informed um, American Jewish debates over Israel, and to the degree to which American Jewish organizations were willing to commit to conversations about anti-colonialist struggles, reparations for slavery in the United States, all around the world. So I think it's a really important chapter in terms of having those two kinds of apartheid, those two conversations
0: about apartheid encounter each other. Well Marjorie we've taken up a lot of your time so any parting thoughts you'd like to share and uh, what are you working on next?
1: Um. Well I, I'm headed toward um, giving a paper at the um, American Jewish, the, the Association for Jewish Studies Conference which is coming up in a few weeks and to look at the program of the AJS is to see that a lot of these narratives are sort of being complicated by scholars who are increasingly talking about you know queer studies and Palestine studies. And so I think that it's an exciting time in Jewish studies, maybe especially in U.S. Jewish studies, American Jewish studies. And I'm hoping that my next study, which I don't have a firm grasp of yet, but I'm hoping that I can talk about the ways in which the opening up of that door, I think the opening up of conversations about Israel and Palestine in the United States is really you know, helping some Jews who previously had felt that door slammed in their face walk through it. I think that it's opening up the possibility that unaffiliated Jews can become affiliated again because the Jewish community and Jewish scholarship is becoming increasingly open to alternative perspectives. So I hope, though I don't have a firm grasp of my next project, I hope I'm able to sort of
0: capture that uh, spirit that's running through the Jewish community right now. Well, Marjorie, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Nations Divided, American Jews and the Struggle Over Apartheid, published in 2014 by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at NewBooksJudaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, Studies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you.